You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey everyone, this is Tristra New Year Jaeger, your irregular host here at Music Tectonics, the podcast where we dig around beneath the surface of music and tech. When not chatting here, I'm strategist at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the music tech PR firm behind this podcast. Today, we are going to have a fun conversation. Um, thanks to our amazing guest, Dario Slavaza, who has been head of curation at Feed for the past three years and counting. Dario is an ethnomusicologist by training with extensive music and arts background, as well as a very sharp ear for finding the perfect music for fitness, retail, and healthcare apps and settings. We'll talk more about exactly what that involves in a second, but first, Dario, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So I always love to hear, I mean, everyone in the music business is in this because they have a, usually a passion for music. So I want to hear how yours began. What got you into music? Um, I mean, it's sort of nebulous in the sense that I grew up in a household where music and dance were just, you know, important beyond, you know, playing or, you know, sort of listening. It just sort of became the DNA of how we communicated with each other. And, you know, it's something that from a very early age for me was a strong passion. Um, I come from a family of people of scientists and designers but they're all very creative people and music for me is where I found that and you know, sort of encouraged early on. And so it's something that has always been, I've been playing the saxophone since I was about seven or eight and making music just annoyed and generally since then. That's wonderful. How did you decide to study music academically and specifically ethnomusicology, which for those of you out there who may not know this, is the study of music from non-Western classical cultures and communities. How did you get um, interested in that particular line of study? Um, it, you know, it happened by chance. Um, I was going to university and had plans to be a saxophone performance major, but our professor had gone on sabbatical and, you know, left with that option of just sort of floating, found myself gravitating towards the professors and the curriculum and ethnomusicology. And I think for me, the thing that really stuck out about it was this sort of idea of immersing yourself, not just in music, but the culture of music. You know, I come from a mixed background and my parents have very different tastes in music. And I always found that interesting and fascinating how those things sort of grow, develop, what is important to somebody. And again, not just in you know a musicological perspective as far as theory and these other things but the sort of extra musical layer that's on top of it and that layer really comes in handy in your work now as i understand um uh first but let's talk a little bit about exactly what that role means i mean curation is one of those terms that's kind of curious terms that blur a lot of distinct roles and tasks so how do you define the role of a curator you know, it, it, it's something that I think is deceptively simple, simple in that, you know, when people think about, you know, playlists or radio stations, you think, oh, yes, I get to pick the music that I like and want to listen to, you know, be it something that I am deeply familiar with or something that's, you know, new and hot and that I'm really into. But when you're curating, you're almost taking on the role of, you know, someone who works at an ad agency in that sense, and that you're not just speaking from your voice. And, and more often than not, you're actually eliminating your voice and, you know, speaking from and to 
a totally different set of people. And the, you know, the, the challenge and the complexity is to understand what a group is interested in, what kind of music they like, how that speaks to them. And then, you know, from most of our, our work, how that works in the context of, you know, fitness and working out, which is, you know, a whole different spectrum from just normal listening habits as well. How do you approach trying to solve that problem? I mean, that's a complex set of interlocking perspectives. It almost sounds like an ethnographic question, you know? It is. And I think that's, you know, for me, why I'm so well suited to doing this kind of work. And, and I think from our company's perspective, why the human element is so important, because there is a good portion of it that we can sort of you know, do analysis and allow numbers to tell us, right, you know, BPM, you know, song length, you know, there are ways of measuring, you know, danceability or intensity of a song, but really understanding how those songs work in the context of different workouts for different instructors, for different kinds of things, takes a human element of understanding the broader cultural implications. And that's something that, we spend a lot of time thinking about engaging with and, you know, working out to meld with just the actual numbers, you know, the getting the right BPM for spin classes and, you know, all of these other things that sort of inform the songs that we're choosing. So you're working very closely with your clients, I imagine, in kind of a dialogue as you're going through this discovery process. And, you know, it can be really tough for non-musicians to find the words they're looking for to describe what they want to hear. Sometimes the people have a really good sense and they just don't know exactly how to articulate it. So how do you help them with that problem? I mean, how do you help them express their needs? Um, so if I'm, you know, how would I go about it if I were building, uh, you know, if I wanted to create curate some fitness? classes or I was building a fitness app or something along those lines, how would I come, you know, how could I learn to find the right vocabulary so we could have a good conversation, you know, like sort of the, the musical equivalent of a mood board, you know, something like that. How would, how do you manage that with clients? How do you help them get better at talking about what they need? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the biggest issue, you know, with, with music in that, you know, music professionals are all, oftentimes speaking a totally different language than you know the average listener or even people who are music enthusiasts you know and and music in general is something that is very subjective and so there's a lot of you know sort of ambiguities as opposed to what something wants you know and i think for us the first thing is really getting down to those hard numbers using those as much as possible to give us guide rails right and that's tempo um you know other things like the years that things were released that really just like what what is, when someone says throwback that's something that is you know based on who's saying it and who they're the group that's going to be listening to it means very different things and so trying to use those hard numbers and then beyond that i mean the beauty of it is we have all this art to use and so i you know creating you know like you said not a sound collage but yeah the sound mood board examples i think that is the, the thing that speaks you know, volumes beyond trying to just describe the music, you know, saying it's, it's hip or it's fast, like, just give me a song. Like, what do you mean? You know, sh you know, show me. And I think that more than anything, you know, we spend a lot of time working with our clients about demographics and the kind of songs and the moods. But, you know, for me, at the end of the day, you know, give me 10 to 20 songs that you think really fit with what you're trying to do. And that's just so much more valuable. 
That makes tons of sense. So uh, you've had quite a bit of experience in curating music for different clients. I'm wondering if you have a few really interesting examples or anecdotes you'd want to share. Um, like, for instance, your favorite unexpected combination of music or artists that worked for a project, even though no one really expected they would, sort of like the chocolate um, chocolate and peanut butter, or like you know, the salt and caramel of the music curation experience. Tell me a bit about some of your um, favorite moments. Um, you know, I, th- I think musically is something that I've, I've really enjoyed is, you know, finding the spaces where people are finding confidence through music and, you know, in ways of expressing things that aren't always on the surface. You know, I think right now is a great time and the amount of companies that are making, you know, playlists for Pride Month is just great to see. And also the breadth of what that means, right? Because a, a Pride station, it could mean so many different things. And I think that's something that to do that kind of work and sort of see that it's not just, you know, what you would consider stereotypical for, you know, like a queer community music is it means very different things. Sometimes it's, you know, the orientation of the artist, but sometimes it's, you know, the context of the music. And I think for me, that's really in- enjoyable. Um, from an, an, an extra musical perspective, um, I think for me in particular, getting to experience and experiment with our customers. Uh, we were working on a spin class with one of our customers. And so it meant I got to do a lot of spin. Um, and it meant I actually did a lot of testing with an instructor. So I got my own one-on-one spin class. And so I got to make sta- make the stations for my own spin class and then actually you know have a, a bike and then a, another bike facing me with an instructor. And we got to you know, sort of run through these and, and get a hands-on experience of what it's like to feel the transitions and what songs, yeah, work and don't work. And some surprise you sometimes a song that you're like, oh, this is, you know, when you're sitting at your desk and you're listening to it, you're like, oh, this is great. It's upbeat. It's got, you know, it's got all this, you know, I really love the song Julian by Carly Rae Jepsen. I think it's a great song. Uh, the bridge is really interesting. It does some key changes that I really like. But man, it just doesn't work in spin, and it and it was something to, you know, to, to to find that out while you're you know on the bike, you know standing off the seat is just you know it's really it's a really great experience, and so I, I think things are like that, which also in simpler you know just sometimes making a playlist and going for a run, you know, is you know more telling than anything else. You you actually caught me. That's one of my favorite things to do, um, and to try to come up with really odd things to run to, like you know, Norwegian uh, folk pop or something. Like, yeah. There's always there's so many um, there's so many cool things that can inspire uh, positive uh, sort of movement connections without uh, being the sort of typical stuff that we all expect. So that yeah. is so cool. How um, what are some of the things you'd love to see change about? anything in any aspect of your job, be it how metadata works or <laughs> how people approach playlists or what are, what are um, how people rely on algorithms? What are some things that you wish would change in the future? Um, I mean, I think, you know, you said metadata first, that's something that, you know, if you're not in the industry, people don't really think about, but it's something I, I could give a whole talk about you know, the, the value of proper metadata, the lack, lack of infrastructure around it right now. I think, yeah, f- for me as a curator, you know, and, and for us as a company, you know, that is something that is 
so critical and is so often overlooked for various reasons. You know, it's something that is, you know, built on a system that isn't always supported. Metadata, you know, can range anywhere from just a spreadsheet that somebody's keeping, you know, to I've seen people still have actual physical, you know, files. Sometimes it just doesn't exist. And it's something that unfortunately doesn't allow us to really leverage a lot of material that we'd like to because there's not enough information there. And then on the flip side of that, you know, people who aren't properly being credited, you know, in that, you know, it was a big deal when, you know, streaming companies started putting, you know, producer credits and songwriter credits, but that's not easy because that information just isn't actually there sometimes. And so even if you want to put it in, you know, it just doesn't exist. You know, and there's whole companies built around trying to find this information and it's still a challenge to consolidate it, you know, and the fact that it's, there isn't some sort of universal format is something that I find, I find baffling. And I'm always just sort of thinking about, you know, how, how do we change this? But, you know, it it starts at the very beginning, you know, it's something that I always found so frustrating that when you make a song, you know, if you're recording in Pro Tools and you finish making a song adding the metadata to that file is hard. You know, it's just difficult from the very beginning of the process. And so it's something that unfortunately requires the entire industry and very different segments of that to all do the lifting and sort of make that process easier in that sense. You know, aside from that, I think just more education, you know, music licensing, just like the metadata that goes with it is you know, complicated, sometimes someone would say convoluted. And a big part of that comes from people not being properly educated on, you know, what it means to properly license something, to make sure that every, all of the rights holders are being paid, that everything's being documented, because it is a sort of, you know, uh, you know, very fractured sort of landscape. And so I think for me, you know, I would, I would just love to see some standardization and, you know, and a lot of those different aspects come together. I think it would really help everybody. Yeah, that is definitely something that has uh, been a long time dream. And hopefully uh, there have been some very uh, positive movements lately in the direction of maybe we could actually figure this out. Just maybe um, what kind of metadata is missing just just for any sort of publishers, you know, catalog folks out there, rights holders who might be listening um, from your perspective, what metadata is the most valuable beyond the sort of basics that uh, for in terms of fitness or healthcare? Uh, programming when it comes to you know what you do yeah i I mean i I think that's that's the idea right is that you know if a publishing house you know has 100 percent of their rights that's fine you know it's 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 easy right they're a one-stop shop you know if they have especially if they you know it's somebody who has both sides problem solved there's no questions right but when you only own 20 percent or even 80 percent it's not just about having your information, right? It's, you know, more often than not, publishers, record labels don't know who has that other 20%. They know how much they have, and that's sort of where the information stops. And so if you're someone who's interested in that material, you now have to go out and find who that other, you know, 20% is. And, you know, and if that's that's split between, you know, four or five different rights holders, you know, the fact that none of them really have information on who owns the other portion of that is a huge roadblock for anybody that wants to use that material. And so I think that just the, the I think 
the awareness. I think it's one of the reasons why things, you know, like blockchain are so appealing. You're like, oh, I get to see where all of this is and who owns all of this in a way that is up to date and usable. And that's something that doesn't exist now. You know, a record label knows that we have the mass recording and, you know, our affiliate publishing house has 50%, but, you know, question mark on the rest of it. And so it's up to anyone who wants to have access to that to to sort of now, you know, play detective. I think that's a, you know, like I said, a huge hurdle. One other big hurdle I imagine curators face is just finding good music, especially with the uh, you know, the deluge of amazing music that's coming out all the time. Um, and especially in new styles, new genres, now that we're basically a global music marketplace or world, how, um, what are some discovery tools you wish were there? What are some ways for finding and surfacing stuff uh, for you to sort of listen to and evaluate? Um, like if you could make anything happen, what what would those tools look like or sound like? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think it really depends on the, you know, the genre or sort of, you know, space you're working in. You know, I don't think there's, you know, a one-stop shop in that sense. You know, if you're listening to dance music, there are certain, you know, sites and, you know, other places where you can go. But if you listen to heavy metal, it's very different, you know. Um, I think as a curator, oftentimes, you know, one of our challenges is actually trying to get past the algorithm. You know, it constantly wants to serve up things that we already have and already like. And so it's how do you break past, you know, past that and, and get to the space where I can sort of just like find new things. You know, one of the things that I think in the last year has been challenging. I often did that by traveling, you know, being in a new place with different people. And, okay, what are they listening to here? What's popular here? You know, and then for, for us as curators, almost trying to do the same thing on the internet. You know, I think going off the beaten path is really where a lot of good discovery comes in that sense, you know, going outside of the the larger sort of gatekeepers in that sense, you know, there's a lot of fun uh, websites and resources that'll, you know, uh, list hits in different countries or, you know, throughout different times and years. And I think that in conjunction with, you know, taking a very academic approach to, to researching in the sense of, you know, really delving into a sound, an artist, a genre, and then branching out from there and exploring all the connectivity, you know, building a a big map of connections, I think is the best way to explore and discover, you know, it's one of my favorite things. There's several websites that do this for electronic music, you know, in various formats, but where they list all the different genres and examples and these huge webs, you know, and I, I just love spending time on those because it just leads you down, down rabbit holes that you wouldn't normally follow. And like I said, off the beaten path, I think is the best way for discovery. And how, when you, when you, you've gone on this sort of quest and you've gone down these interesting back alleys and found these nooks and crannies of, um, fascinating music and then you take it back and you uh, how does the licensing work right that's the i guess that's how where the two sides need to come together (laughs) well exactly you know i mean i think that's that's the challenge you know i mean i think in in film it's what makes such a good music supervisor you know is somebody that that not only finds something interesting but can deliver on it you know and i think we feed you know the different models that we use for what licensing are, are one of the reasons why that's so functional 
you know, in that with our, you know, uh, B2B products, we're using, you know, licenses that allow us access to a huge, you know, portion of recorded music. And with Adapter, you know, we're pre-licensing a lot of these things so that if someone finds them in this context, they know that they already have access to it and can use them. Because otherwise, yeah, you're sort of a shot in the dark, especially when you talk about a global you know, sort of marketplace, but everyone's still operating on a country by country basis for licensing, you know? And so even if you have users that are around the world, if you find this great song, you may only be able to use it in the United States or maybe only in Britain. And it doesn't give you across all of those territories. And so it's, it's challenging in that sense. And I think the other side of that too, you know, is, tempering discovery especially in fitness with familiarity and you know it's it's one thing to think of just oh a hot you know playlist of all the greatest new songs but how do you you know temper that with things that people are familiar with and want to listen with and find strike a balance i want to get back a little bit to your off the beaten path slash global um observations um in a recent blog post you, i want to think it was one of your colleagues wrote about how uh, curation has, in, in general, been able to embrace more and more of these songs that are either cross-cultural, multilingual, or that aren't in the um, language spoken uh, where they will be, uh, you know, used. So they, you know, maybe a Spanish language song for a predominantly um, English-speaking audience. How? Tell me a little bit about that process because I think you've been in the business long enough to see that sea change. Um, as there's been more and more interest and acceptance of um, non-English pop. It wasn't always that way, right? So how has that felt from your perspective? Um, you know, I think it's been great. You know, I think it used to be the case, you know, for any band that wasn't in the United States or an English-speaking country that if you wanted hits, you had to speak English, you know, and you had to sing in English. You know, they think of so many bands that made that. Phoenix is a great example of a band, you know, that, made the decision to, to speak in English, you know, and, and, you know, the hives, you know, the, it used to be right. Yeah. The sort of the threshold, but you lose a lot of the local color and flavor and what makes a lot of those, you know, places so interesting when you do that. And I think it's really great for artists to have the freedom to be able to express themselves in these different ways, you know, and it is, it's something that's been slowly changing. I hope it c continues to change, but I think a, a big portion of that too, is that, you know, with the internet and people moving away from, you know, being so hyper localized that people are forming themselves into new groups that aren't just based on where they are. And that allows, you know, an artist from Colombia to be really big in not just Latin America and I think that that's, you know, really great. And yeah, and I think it, a big portion of that has to do with American audiences opening up to not being the sort of center of the, of the universe in that sense. You know, and I think it's slowly happening in, in film as well and, you know, in literature. And it, it's something that I think is bigger than, than music in that sense. It's not something, it's not just a trend within music. It's more of a cultural shift. And it's, we're seeing it reflected in music. 
Speaking of shifts, um, I was curious about um, what has been going on from your perspective in the fitness world when it comes to music. Now, I don't want you to have to spill too much of the secret sauce or reveal any trade secrets, but um, the fitness industry in terms of digital apps and virtual experiences has gone through a major revolution the past year and a year and a half, roughly. So how has that affected your, um, your work? How what kind of are you putting together different kinds of music for people? Are at home workouts radically different from in studio workouts or in person workouts? Are you noticing any differences or is it more just a question of volume? You know, I mean, yeah, digital has exploded. You know, it's something that there were a lot of people who were working in that space that saw their, you know, user bases and all of these things explode. There's another segment of the industry who, you know, were mostly brick and mortar and had digital sort of in the back burner. And once that wasn't an option, really had to push into that space and get into it. Um, And so that is, that has been a big shift. I think from our perspective, you know, for curating for that, not a lot has changed, but there is a distinct difference between an in-person class with an instructor, with another group of people, and an online class. You know, it, the energy is different. The way you engage with it is, is different. And also, more often than not, with a digital class, there's the likelihood that it's going to be taken again and again. And so it has to have a replay value that a live class is just never intended to have. You know, and so I think from a fitness industry perspective, it takes a huge shift of, you know, approach to really come at things with, you know, this more open-minded and that, you know, it's not, I'm in New York, I have this yoga studio and it's who comes to it and, and that's it and it's done and it's over. You know, the people all around the country or the world might be listening to this, engaging with it. They might also all be doing it at AM, you know, they might do it after dinner. And so, having that sort of approach really takes a wider lens. And so that's something that we spend a lot of time working with our customers doing. So if it's intended for replay, does that mean just there needs to be more variety in the track selections? I mean, so say I have like a series of five classes, I don't want to have um, just for example, Beyonce dominating every single one of those classes. I mean, maybe I do, maybe that's my brand, but you know, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying, like, I don't want to have, I don't want to wear people down with like, don't stop believing every single class. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. You know, this is a, a class or something that someone might do several times a week. You know, they find their favorite instructor and they find this class they really like. And then the last thing you want is to have the same music playing over and over again, you know, and if it is, you know, by a major artist like Beyonce, that's also going to be very expensive to have the same music, you know, playing over and over again synced with your video, you know. And so you want something that is consistent from an experience and that, you know, the person doing it is properly motivated and that everything works out. But you also do want it to have freshness and have a life, you know, beyond just a one-time listen. And so that's something that is not always easy to do it takes a a certain ear to be able to put together music for a class that you know will have that kind of that kind of life i mean one of the things we do for a lot of our clients is they have 
have radio stations that they use for their classes and we update them constantly. Every month we go back and we, you know, take out songs that aren't working, add songs that are, and keep them fresh so that you have consistency and that the majority of what's in there is the same, but that it's freshened up over time and so that it has this life that is much longer than just a one-off. Thanks for explaining that and going into sort of the nuts and bolts of how all this works. And thanks in general for uh, coming to to talk with us today. So um, Dario, before we go, this could be not necessarily about your work in curation or even about fitness or um, any of that kind of thing. But let's, I always love to ask people if they could ha- like imagine one really cool new invention related to music tech, what would it be? What would yours be? If you could wave a magic wand and create anything, what would, what would that look like? Oh, that's such an interesting question. <sighs> you know, I think something that's a really interesting and intriguing space and there's a lot of people working in this there's a lot of you know sort of spatial sound yeah but as it stands right now right there's the sort of the the theatrical aspect of it you know and and dolby surround and all of these things um but as far as music is concerned there are big installations you know there's a few particularly in san francisco in the bay area we have audium and envelope which are these big 360 theaters and sort of you know, installations that, although great, are obviously unwieldy and not built for the average person. I think something that really exploring that sort of spatial aspect of space, but for the average person, to me, would be really exciting. I think it's an aspect of our our, our hearing and listening that, you know, because most people are used to listening on, you know, earbuds or from the television, you know, in mono, it gets underutilized and I think is really exciting. And I think when properly, you know, sort of utilized to me would be something that is really engaging. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dario. Have a wonderful day and thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. The annual Music Tectonics Conference is known for bringing together people from across the music tech landscape to share ideas and get business done. In 2021, our unique conference approach invites a global audience to participate in parallel universes, in the metaverse, across the planet, and on a carousel by the sea. Mark your calendar for online events October 25th through October 27th and in-person events outdoors by the sea in Los Angeles on November 2nd. We're maximizing what virtual events do best with two unique platforms. In the morning, we'll bring together dynamic and interactive panels of thought leaders plus our world-famous speed networking so you can share ideas and build relationships frictionlessly across time zones. In the afternoon, we'll add even more serendipity as we invite you to the metaverse. Join us for that feeling of togetherness as you move your avatar through the crowd at a musical instrument demo, drop into the virtual expo hall, or strike up a chance conversation. Don't just talk about innovation and music, experience it at a conference like no other, Music Tectonics. Learn more and get a special early bird ticket price starting June 1st at musictectonics.com. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. 
You can dig deeper into this episode, learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, and sign up for our newsletter. MusicTectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, on LinkedIn. Peace. You're listening to Music Tectonics.